Our tough talk today is uh, from Mark's Gospel, as they have been uh, in the last several weeks. Actually, we've been in Mark's Gospel since January. And um, I'd like you to turn there to Mark chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, take your smartphone and download an app, a Bible app. It's on the screen, and you can get there. Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 41. Now, before we, uh, before we actually look at this talk, we need to see the setting of it because the setting of it is really significant for understanding what it's going to say. It is the last public talk by Jesus in Mark's gospel, and, and Jesus knows it. And as we have come to see so clearly as we've gone through this gospel, there's nothing that Jesus says or does that is, that is not strategic. He knows exactly when this is, what he's doing, and the setting for this talk actually befits the occasion in the city of Jerusalem before he will be crucified there in one week, less than a week, in the temple, the temple which is the heart, is supposed to be the heart of authentic worship of God, the the, the central earthly reality that pointed to Jesus and what God was going to do in just one less than a week to replace this temple with Jesus. The temple, the place into which Jesus had entered when he first came to Jerusalem at the beginning of the week in chapter 11 of Mark, what's the first thing he does? He throws a fit, turning over kiosks in the foyer, kicking out the merchandisers, ripping people off. They're making money off people who wanted to worship God from their hearts. And now, his final appearance before the mock trial that will lead to his execution, one last time, Jesus is in the temple. Not to make a loud scene exposing the corruption of the system that preyed on people's vulnerability, but to quietly and publicly affirm, to commend for all of history, one of the least of these, one of those last will be first kind of people he's been talking about who demonstrates an authentic act of worship. That's the setting. So what in the world does it have to do with a corny song uh, 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 like doobie doobie doo? Well, just a couple of agree or disagree questions. You don't have to respond to them, just think about them. Number one, True or false, being is more important than doing. Or who we are is more important than what we do. But be careful because remember last week when the rich man asked Jesus, what should I do? Jesus did not say, oh bro, let me free you from that doing mentality. It's not about you doing anything. It's about me doing for you and you being in me. Jesus did not say that. He gave him not just one thing to do, but five things. Go, sell, come. Give, follow. In Jesus' mind, doing and being can't be separated. It really is. Do, be, do, be, do. Okay, I know it's weak, but you'll remember it. (laughs) Right? The beginning of the year, somebody um, gave gave us a a book of uh, a, a sort of read through the Bible in a year kind of plan with some um, you know, devotional things each day. And this week was uh, a statement that said this, this kind of thinking 
that says being is more important than doing, who we are is less important than what, or more important than what we do, that kind of thinking, it says, sets us up for wrong-headed thinking. Not because doing is more important than being, but because it's a false dichotomy. You cannot be without doing. So another one, we often say, well, it's, it's the heart that counts. True or false? Well, it depends what we mean when you, we use that line. You see, how, how do we most often use that line? We use it as an excuse, either for ourselves or somebody that we want to defend or protect. An excuse for them after they or I have done something, a doing thing that is somehow incomplete or short of what might be expected, right? Oh, well, it's the heart that counts. Really? Well, yes and no. That's an irrelevant statement most of the time. If we're saying by that that it doesn't matter what we do or don't do as long as the heart is right, uh, no. Yes, it is the heart that counts, but it's our doing what we do and how we do what we do that exposes our heart. We may think we can hide our hearts, defend our hearts, because people can't see our hearts. Well, our hearts are always on display by what we do. And a huge part of that is what we do with that little member behind our teeth, our tongue. Jesus said a tree is recognized by its fruit. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The book of Proverbs, all of a person's ways seem right in his own eyes. We can justify anything by just simply saying it's the heart that counts. But the Lord evaluates the heart. You can't separate doing and being. Jesus never called us to just be. So, with that as a background, let's join Jesus with his core disciples in the temple for his last public tough talk. Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So, The first tough thing that we need to hear is that Jesus' last public tough talk is all about money. It's about money, but it's not just his last talk. If you look through the last several chapters, beginning in chapter 10, we saw that there's a money thread running through the whole thing. The the, uh, last week, we saw that the doing piece that Jesus called, talked to this rich man about, was about money, right? Give it all to the poor. Chapter 11, it was a money issue that started this last week off, kicking people out of the temple who are using the desire, the need, the requirement to worship God as as a way to make money off those people. 
Chapter 12, it's a money question that's another trap for Jesus. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? <laughs> you know what's funny there? These people who are ripping, ripping their own people off with money are ticked because they think Caesar's ripping them off. Right? And now his last talk, Jesus' last talk, it's not a question that comes to him that he's forced to answer. He actually deliberately sets up this last public talk in the temple about money. But it's not even just this last week. As many of us know, Jesus talks more about money than he does about heaven and hell, about sex and romance. Money is the number one real-life issue that Jesus talks about. So, let's think about that as we join Jesus. We're, we're going we're gonna to answer three questions that sort of flow flow out of this passage. Number one, what in the world is happening? What is Jesus saying? What, is, what does this say about what Jesus is saying? What does this say about what Jesus is assuming and implying about me? Okay, What? Why? Why in the world does Jesus make money the issue? And number three, how can I do what Jesus is wanting me to do? Okay, What, why, and how? So let's briefly review the what. What Jesus says and what he assumes and implies by what he is saying. Now, in one sense, the, the, the what is obvious, but we have to get it on the table. The last issue Jesus talks publicly about in the temple is about money. And not just about money, but about giving money to the temple. What we call our offering. You know, we, we take an offering every Sunday, but we don't often teach about what it is we're doing and why we're doing it. So we're going to do that this morning. And, and I, I have two assumptions going in, and you may say these are false assumptions, but I, I, I'm just assuming this. Number one, I believe that every one of us here, in our hearts, we want to be known as, as generous people, as giving people, as, as authentic people, don't we? We all want to be givers. And we may even think of ourselves as givers. So that's, that's one assumption. Number two, I also have the assumption, if you're like me, uh, maybe you say I'm not like you. Okay, fine. But I, I have the assumption that all of us struggle. We struggle with giving in some way, but our struggle at giving is not what we think it is. Okay? So those are the two assumptions going, going into this. So let's, let's look a little deeper as to the what here. Uh, the temple was a very public place. It, it wasn't a, a building with an auditorium. It, it, was, it was a complex uh, before you actually got into the temple walls was the, what's, what was called the court of the Gentiles. They, they were welcome to come to worship, but not into the temple. And the entrance part of the temple, what we might call the foyer, was, was, uh, uh, was what was called the court of the women and children. Everybody could be there, and everybody who could get into the inner part of the temple had to go through this court. It was, it was the gathering place for everybody. And one of the key features in this public court was 13, 13 big uh, trumpet-shaped receptacles with a chest at the bottom. They were called shofar chests. A shofar was like a, a horn that was blown to call people to worship. They were called shofar chests, and, and, and they were placed with the wide end up, which was 
easy to put the money in and you couldn't get your fist down to the bottom to get the money out. Okay? Uh, Jesus parks himself. You, you, by the way, you couldn't get into the, the inner complex of the temple without going past one of these shofar chests. Very public. And, and, and Jesus parks himself along with his disciples right in front of a key one of these shofar chests. We won't get into which one it was, but that, that's significant too. We won't have time to spend on that. And they watch what people gave. Everybody could see what people gave, and they could also see and hear the giving, and they conclude how much they gave. And so the second uncomfortable thing about this whole scene is that in Jesus' mind, giving is not a private matter. Okay? We like to say that what I give is just between me and God. Well, it, it certainly is between you and God, but the greatest disservice that we do to ourselves is saying that it's just between me and God. And we'll see why in a little bit. There's only one statement in the entire Bible that implies, that seems to imply that giving is a private matter. That statement is in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus talks about a very special kind of giving. Not the giving that was happening with this woman in the temple. Not the giving that is the regular giving to the church. It was about another kind of giving that was also very important to Jesus that was done in addition to, not instead of, giving in the temple. It was about giving personally to help people who were in poverty. And the reason it was to be kept private was so as not to embarrass the poor, not to create a, a greater sense of power of the haves over the have-nots. Now, just so you know, when you give something at Ellerslie, it is private, okay? There's a very small group of people, I, I believe it's two, who know, and the only reason they know is they have to know because they do the receipting for our charitable giving, okay? And I do not have access to that information. You can look me in the eye anytime you want and not feel defensive or guarded, wondering, does he know how much I give or don't give? Okay? But that wasn't so in the temple. Jesus was watching and... He was waiting for just the right moment for this last tough talk. He, he watched as the wealthy people came and probably came with a, with a wave of their arm to attract attention as they dropped in a lot of money. And they probably took their time doing it, allowing each coin to flow in separately so people could just not just see but could hear that they were giving a lot of money. And then along comes a poor widow who puts in, count them, Jesus did, one, two, really little clinks. Two small copper coins, two lepta, which was the smallest amount possible, a lepta. It was impossible to give any less than this woman gave, well, unless it was only one of those coins. This was literally what we might say is two pennies. And Jesus says to his disciples, hey, you guys, did you see her? Nope, they hadn't. She had tried desperately to be as inconspicuous as possible and her coins didn't make enough noise to attract attention. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Get this, get this clearly. 
This woman has put in more to the, into the treasury than all of the others. They gave out of their wealth, from their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Let's think about this for a moment. You know, we, we sometimes say, and, and sometimes we even use this story to validate what we say, you know, it's, it's not the amount that matters as long as we give something. Jesus is very clearly saying that the amount matters a lot to Jesus. There's no question Jesus is not happy about what's happening in this temple with the amount that people gave to the temple, right? But he still commends and expects even the poorest of the poor to give to the temple. What's with that? Well, that brings us to our second question. Why? Why does Jesus talk about so money, money so much? And why is this final talk about money a talk about giving in the temple? There's two answers to that question. Both of these answers have to do with what we began with, with the heart. So let's go back to those questions of the heart. There's one thing about the heart that Jesus measures that God is looking for, what is it? Well, many of us who have the accounts of Jesus' life and teaching in our minds can answer that question very easily, right? There's one core thing about our hearts that God is looking for. Jesus reveals it in an encounter with another woman in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. Remember when, he, when, he, when she talks about what? She talks about the temple that Jesus says, You know, it's not really about the temple, it's about the heart. The time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father is looking for. You all know that there's only one statement in the New Testament about God looking for anything. He's looking for worshipers, authentic worshipers. The central matter of the heart is worship. God is looking for authentic worship. So so what is worship? What is worship? What is it we are called to do when we come together to demonstrate authenticity in our being? Is it music? Well, music should facilitate this doing, but music per se is not worship. What are we called to do? Listen to a God talk? Well, we are actually called to do that when we get together, but listening to a God talk in itself is not an act of worship. It should facilitate an act of worship, but it is not worship. Worship is our part in the great, wonderful, beautiful, and powerful two-step dance of the universe. This dance, like everything good, begins with God. God takes the lead in this dance and the the leading edge of how God relates to us is grace. Grace is simply God, because of who he is, giving me what I don't deserve. Full and free and overflowing. Our response to this two-step dance or our response, our step in this dance is worship, which is simply me 
Not because of who I am, but because of who God is. Giving him what he does deserve. Worship is not the words I sing or the way my body gets into the words I sing. It is not just getting inspired by the right kind of passionate God talk. Worship is out of hearts that are melted by the goodness and grace and love of God and Jesus that he gives us freely and fully, even though we don't deserve it. It's simply giving God what he does deserve, which is everything, everything, all of who I am and all of what I have. Authentic worship in a time like this of gathering is, is affirming and, and, and letting our hearts hear and receive and reflect on God's goodness and grace that we have a standing as, a, as an heir with Jesus of the entire universe in the kingdom of God and then declaring with our words that we give ourselves to being true about ourselves for the rest of the week. Living in keeping with that. That's worship. Worship is expressing outwardly in what I say and what I do that I have made from the core of my being that kingdom transfer thing we talked about last week giving control of everything to the God who has given me everything. If that is not what I'm doing when I come in here on a Sunday morning, I, I cannot say that what I've done is worship. So in one sense, it's not about the money because I can give without worshiping. I can give out a sense of duty. I can give out of a sense of showing that I am somebody like the rich people Jesus witnessed in the temple. You can give to feel good. You can give to impress people. You can give to feel like you can look the pastor in the eye without feeling guilty. But in another sense, it's all about money because you, although you can give without worship, you cannot worship without giving because the essence of worship is giving. Now I know what you're thinking. And I'm ahead of you because this story speaks to what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, there are other ways to give besides money. I, I, I give my time. I, I use my gifts to serve God. It doesn't have to be about the money. We're going to speak a little bit to more about that in a little bit, but, but that's one of the reasons this story is so powerful. And the nature of the person whom Jesus chose to teach this lesson is so significant if that is true, if that statement is true, that it's not about the money, I can give something else. Jesus would have taught a different lesson from this experience. Do you not think Jesus would have said to his disciples, look at this woman, you've got to love her heart. She, she is a true hero, but if only she knew that she didn't have to give her last two pennies. You know, her core issue is probably pride. She feels she has to show that she has to give something so that she can keep, keep up and look good like the people around her. If she would just give a little bit more of her time, perhaps sweep the floors of the temple without getting paid, that would be all God asks of her. Jesus doesn't say that because it is about the money. So that leads us to the second why money question. What is it about the money that makes it a worship issue? Because what we do with the money we have is the core kingdom transfer indicator. It's the central control issue. We know this intuitively because the number one area of conflict in a marriage is money. 
When I talk with couples who are getting married and, and talk about money, and I, I bring this statement up, I, I, I say, money conflicts are never really about money. So if that's true, what are they about? And the top two answers I've got in over 40 years of doing this is number one, well, it's about control. And number two, it's about priorities. Bingo. It's not just true in a marriage. It's true in the, the relationship that marriage is supposed to reflect, a relationship with God. Do you want to know what controls you? It's really very easy. You've heard in every investigative report, every detective story, it's so boring, so cliche. How do you figure out what controls you? Just follow the money. If you know what, want to know what the priorities of your life are, what counts to you, follow the money or what you are worried about and fear and resent that you can't have because you don't have the money. The reason you give to the church is not because the church needs it. The reason we give to the church is not because God needs it. The reason we give to the church is not because the church is doing great things and what kind of great things they can do. The reason I give to the church is because I need to do it to remind my heart about where I want my heart to be. Jesus, in talking about money in Matthew chapter 6, he says, where your treasure is, where you put your money, your heart's going to be there. Your heart follows your investment. What you do influences your being. You see that? That is why giving a planned priority amount is supposed to be the first expense you make from your income. It's the first priority. You see, giving that is worship is not, oh my, let's see what I have left over after my core expenses are taken care of. Uh -uh. The giving that is worship is the kind of giving that says, you know what, this is my first priority because I want it to be a declaration that God is my first priority and then I can decide what I can afford with the rest of what I have. That's one of the reasons it's so important to start practicing this kind of giving when you're young, before you get established. My parents made me practice this as a kid. I got an allowance, but I, my allowance was a dollar, but I didn't get it in a dollar bill. I got it in coins. And the reason I got it in coins, because although I got a dollar given to me, I had to take off 10% and give that as my offering. Because if you don't do this before you get established as a young couple, if you wait to start giving before you've made some of your major life commitments, it's actually harder to do. The pie's already cut up. Now let's come back to that other uncomfortable peach piece that we touched on before. One excuse we give ourselves when we don't want to give is, well, I don't give to the church because I, I don't agree with what they're doing with their money. Now, I know you've never said that, but if you've been around a church for a number of years, you've heard somebody say that, I'm going to help you give an answer to that person, right? Okay. Now, just to remind you how we make decisions and priorities here. At, in, in this church, the major directions we go, the key strategies we use, the priority as to how we use the money we have are, are evaluated by a core group of people we consider godly and wise whom we have elected into that position and are agreed to 
by the congregation. That's what we're going to do at our congregation meeting in two weeks. Two weeks? Next week? Next week, right. Now, even though we do that, if I suddenly disagree with something or someone, even after we have, as a church, decided how to use the money in a certain way, and I say, huh, I don't agree with that. I'm going to pull back my money. What is that? That's the ultimate control issue, right? With money that really isn't my money. I have said that it's God's money. And that's why Jesus commends this woman and actually tells his disciples that this woman is the epitome of discipleship when even he disagreed with what was going on in the temple is because she was filling her commitment to God to declare with her money that she was releasing control of everything she owned, literally, and she had decided in her heart that, you know what? I'll let God judge what happens with this money and take care of it. It's his money. I'll let him take care of it. Would would we really make those kinds of excuses if we realized that what God is calling us to do with our money to free ourselves from ourselves and and, and give all of ourselves to him and and release it to him? And And it's this reason... The fact that our financial giving is to be an act of worship to God, releasing our whole selves to God, it's this reason that the entire time I've been a pastor, I have refused to teach about giving at a time when our church's income from giving is low. We're not meeting our budget. I've I've refused to do that because it's so easy to create the impression that, that we're giving to a budget, that we're giving to do some things for God. Well, it is true that a key result of giving is, is what we are free to be able to do for God, but we're not asking you to give to a budget. God calls us to give to Him as an act of worship. So what is it that Jesus is asking us to do when we give up control? Control issues are ultimately trust issues. Giving, and this woman is the epitome of this, sacrificial giving as an act of worship is the key way God calls us to say, you know what, I'll trust you. I'll trust you to provide for me. I'll trust you to take care of this money. I'll trust you to help me use the rest in a way that brings, in, that, that, that brings honor to you and, and is enough for what I do. So why in the world, if I've always refused to talk about money, at a time when we're shy in our giving, why am I doing it this year? Because the board made, no, I'm sorry. It did not make me. I told the board they couldn't make me. That was one thing. I, I, but the reason I'm doing, no, I didn't say that to the board, but I'm sorry. I, I didn't say that. Erase that from the tape, okay? No, I'm, I'm doing it for two reasons. Number one, I'm doing it because we're in this series of tough talks from Jesus from the Gospel of Mark, and I would not be teaching the whole counsel of God as Jesus wants me to do if I avoided it, it's there. It's a key theme in these tough talks, okay? I'm not teaching on it because we need to meet our budget. I'm teaching on it because it was a priority in Jesus' teaching because, of, because money is a key kingdom transfer issue, okay? The second reason I'm teaching on it, and it, uh, I struggled with it even this week until I, as I really began to reflect on, on what we needed to hear this week, as I made the commitment to obey Jesus and teaching what he taught about money, I realized that this year and this time of the year for a lot of us is a great time to teach about this because these are lean times for everybody. Not just the, the reason they're lean times for us as a church because they're lean times for a lot of us as people. And 
Lean times are the best times to reprioritize, reprioritize, reevaluate how we'll use our money, right? You're doing that already. And, and, and so this is a great time to think about this in that kind of way. So that leads to our third question, uh, to think about how. How can I do what Jesus is calling us to do? How can I leverage lean? Take lean times to reevaluate, reprioritize, and put my money where my mouth is in terms of saying that I'm a follower of Jesus. And I realize that this story is the best time to talk about how to leverage lean because if there's anybody who lived lean, it was this woman. There are a number of us here who have already checked out and we're saying, well, you know, that's all fine and good. Maybe that's what Jesus wants, but there's no way I can give. Tell that to the woman. Tell that to Jesus. So, let's talk about how do I do that? Now's the time for some of you to start taking notes, by the way. Just saying. Number one. Number one, and the most important thing, is deal with the real heart issue. God does not need your money. He wants your heart. He wants you. He wants you not because he's a tyrant. He wants you because he wants you to live forever the, the, the way he created you to live in the, in the freedom of trust, in the fullness of his love, in the joy of, of not having to control. The reason we always say when we take an offering that if you're a guest here, don't feel obligated to give is because Giving is an act of worship, and worship is giving our hearts to the God who loves you, and we want to make sure you do that first. We are serious about that. When Paul was talking to the church at the city of Corinth, which, which was a wealthy church, he was writing to them, uh, a wealthy church about their own patterns of giving as a church which was not nearly as generous as some of the much poorer churches, he just hits them directly. He says, since you excel in everything... Make sure you also excel in this grace of giving because you know the grace, the overflowing, empowering, always enriching grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who although he was rich, for your sakes he became poor so that by giving up to you and for you everything he had, you through his poverty could become rich. The giving God wants is giving that's an act of gratitude for the grace I've received in Jesus. So have you given your heart to Jesus fully to open yourself up to the Jesus who has given all of himself for you? Have you seen in Jesus the one who came to free you from your darkness and bring you into his light to take you out of that deadness you feel and give you life? to take you in your despair and give you hope, to rescue you from all of those lesser things that you have given your heart to that have not brought you what you were looking for but have actually taken more from you than they've given. Have you allowed Jesus to take your broken heart and make it whole again? Your hard heart and make it soft again? Your cold heart and make it warm can you say, I am his and he is mine and that's all I need? That's where it starts and that's what Jesus is inviting you to see in him today. 
back to that being, doing piece we started with and that, that book I quoted from, uh, he, he goes on to say, my doing does not flow from my being because I am not light, I am not love. Anything truly good that I do flows out of God's being for me and his doing. Anything noble I do is because God is empowering me to do it. Giving is not about proving something to God because grace can't be bought. It is about seeing that there is something that Jesus has for you that cost him his life and gives you ultimate life that money can't buy, that the lack of money can't rob you of. You don't need an overflowing bank account to have an overflowing heart. Paul puts it this way, I have been crucified with Christ and so it's, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the life I now live in the body, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you know that kind of life? Are, are you living in that? That's what God wants you to process this morning. Talk to somebody and ask them to help you into that kind of life. Number two, if you've done that, the next step is to decide that that you want to believe Jesus fully and obey Jesus completely from your heart in this area of giving. Jesus said in, in the book of John, chapter 14, if you love me, you'll do what I say. You'll obey my commands. And, and that statement, by the way, is in chapter 14 of John, in which he is introducing this idea of the Holy Spirit living in us to empower us to obey. If you love me, you'll obey what I command, and I'm going to give you the resources to be able to do that. And then in chapter 15, he says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now, stay in my love. Here's how to stay in my love. You've got to obey my commands. Just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and thereby remain in his love. Obeying God's clear commands, the doing commands are matters of the heart. And so the next thing you need to do is determine how much you think you should give if you really want to obey fully. There's three guidelines in determining that from the Bible. Number one, it's got to be regular, systematic. For those of us who get paychecks, that means every paycheck, every month. It has to be regular because from my own experience, if I skip once for some reason, it is so hard to make it up and keep it up. If you skip twice, you're not going to do it. It's got to be regular. It's got to be proportionate. The standard pattern is 10%. That's what tithe means, one-tenth. It's not a rule. I would suggest 10% in, in my own, in LaDonna's in my life, we've made 10% the minimum bar. The point is you need to determine a number, a proportionate number that for you is also sacrificial. It should cost me something to give. It costs Jesus his life. So then you, once you've decided you're going to do that, then you say, okay, now how can I do that, right? Number three, you've got to assess where your money's going. Somebody said that money talks. It does. And when money talks, it says goodbye. It's gone, right? 
What does where your money is going say about what is more important to you than God? You know the number one area most people today spend a high percentage of our income on? Leisure and experience. The toys we think we have to have, the trips we have to make, the foodie experience we got to go get into, the entertainment experiences we think we need. Look at all those expenses in the last three months and you will be shocked at how much of your money has gone into that category. And so the question that some of us need to ask is, in what way has upward mobility, regardless of how we define that, in what way has upward mobility taken the place of what Paul calls the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? That's a tough thing to do. But we've got to do that as we assess where our money goes. We haven't got to the tough one yet. Here's the only tough one in this whole thing. Give yourself a pay cut. If you were to go to work tomorrow and discover your boss comes in and says, you know what, times are lean. Everybody's going to have to take a 25% pay cut this year starting today. You panic and you go home and discover your husband and said, you know what, my boss said to me today, we've all got to take a 15% pay cut. What would you do? What would you do? You'd sit there and you'd, you'd be quiet for a while and one of you would finally say, you know what? It's going to be tough, but we can do it. Right? What would you do? You'd, you'd just look at some of the things you could cut. You couldn't afford it. It's not that it's not doable. It's that we don't want to give anything up. But if the money's not there, you could do it. So, if obeying God is more important to you than anything else, here's what you do. You beat the man at his own game. You give yourself a pay cut. You decide to agree with God that 100% is not 100%. The number on your pay stub, the number that your employer deposited into your bank account, is not your 100%. As a matter of fact, it's 0% because you've said it all belongs to God, right? Okay, so start there. And then you develop a plan. Develop and give yourself to live by a plan that actually reflects God's plan. And here's, here's what the value of lean time is. We all often say, well, you know, I, I need to reestablish my priorities or I, I, I need to work out a plan. Lean times give you opportunities to make a plan. When LaDonna and I were first married, we were living in the highest cost of living, living county in Canada. We were the first youth pastors in this little church. And um, the money they gave us was actually below the poverty level for that, that, uh, that county. And both of us, and I was so thankful for a wife that was committed and held me accountable to live by God's plan, we just used a simple formula I had picked up somewhere to establish our budget. We called it the 1070, or it was called the 1070-20 plan. Simply this, you look at the money that's, uh, that, is, that you're getting um, for the year or for the month after, after taxes have taken off, 10%, that's the obedience portion. That's not the, 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 the gratitude portion. That's not the generous portion. That's simply the obedience portion that goes to God. That's off the top. We won't even count that in our income because it's not ours. 
20% is for savings and debt retirement. Some of us have got a whole lot of consumer debt we've built up, and we have to develop a plan for getting rid of that. Try to develop a plan that's based on 20% of your income, and when you're done with that, it's not yours. It now starts going into savings for the future. Make a commitment to develop a plan to stay out of debt. And then savings. Fortunately, LaDonna and I did not build, much, build up much debt. So what, one of the things we did in some of our savings plans is, is we decided on an age that, that we wanted to be when we pay cash for our cars. No, we wanted to stay out of debt, get out, get out of debt. So, so we decided on that age. So that told us what kind of car we could get, how much we could, uh, how long we had to drive that car. And we, we missed that number by two years, that age number. And then 70%, that is the 100%. That's the real 100% that we based our budget off. We gave ourselves a pay cut. 70% is what we believe God allows us to use and control. Over the years, we basically stuck by that formula. We've, we've given our 10%, the majority to the local church that, uh, that we've been in, because we believe that's God's plan. And then as we've tried to develop a giving heart and we're saving and, and for stuff, we have always found to, ways to be, to be generous and release and, and give freely with what we have to serve others. It's been amazing. And actually what happened for a period of time is we decided, let's see how high we can get that. So when our income increased, we did not just increase our giving by a dollar amount, we increased our giving by another percent. And we, went, we just kept going up, see how high we could get that because we'd learned to live off our pay cut. And the number one thing we experienced in all of that was the excitement of being able to see our money at work for God in people. Amazing. So, as the worship team comes up, uh, I just want to give us a tangible challenge. Just to get started, now we're going to come back to that, that lean times thing that uh, we all know we're in as a church. It's not in your worship guide this week, but but you know that we're uh, significantly shy uh, on our budget, our, our income for this year. Our, our year end is uh, June 30th. Just to get started, to give you a, a, another motivation for helping us with this challenge together, uh, what would happen if you not just did not just use you, your own lean issues, but also our church budget deficit as, as a lean time opportunity to do some immediate reprioritizing and say, hey, I want to be part of bringing that, that deficit to flush by June 30th so we can go into our new year flush. Let's take this on together. Can we do that? Not because our budget requires it. That's just the occasion. But because this is an opportunity to reprioritize and really dooby dooby doo.